Good morning. Are you not thankful for Justin and the worship team and the choir? That was awesome. My name is Beth Sedith, and I have the honor of serving as your personnel MLT chair. And this morning, I'm here to talk to you about three things that we're celebrating this week. Number one, we have been in our new buildings five years. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you are new here, when my family started coming, there was purple carpet, there was pews. <laughs> I dropped my baby off in the breezeway, which is now the adult commons. So God has been faithful in his provisions. You have been faithful in your giving, and it's awesome. Five years. Number two, this man to my left right here is celebrating five years of service as our pastor. <laughs> And the third thing is that later this week, he will graduate with his doctor, so you will now need to call him doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and through the past five years, you have led us through change, you've led us through COVID, um, now through incredible growth, and we're just so appreciative of your leadership your service. We've got to watch your sweet family grow and expand over the past <laughs> five years, and that's been a blessing as well. I will say there's one thing that I have wanted to say. I did not say this in the eight o'clock service, but after five years of Sunday mornings after football games and listening to you talk about the Gators, go dogs. <laughs> 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 but on pa behalf of the um, personnel committee, the congregation, we just thank you for your leadership, your service, and we Pray for many, many more years. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Well, I, I mean it sincerely when I say thank you to you, church family. Um, the Lord has uh, grown our church uh, a lot over the last five years, really twice, actually, uh, because of COVID. And um, people ask me kind of what uh, the Lord is doing and celebrate with me what the Lord is doing. And I often say, I do believe that the Lord uh, had equipped me with uh, some of the tools to do the work uh, that need to be done. But the reality is the soil uh, was ripe here uh, under the leadership of uh, Pastor uh, Mike McGue and uh, many other leaders in this church. The church was just in a place of uh, eagerness and desire and vision uh, to see uh, the community impacted, to reach young families, and to make an impact on the nations even more uh, in this season. And so I walked in my first day, and the same day was uh, the day the building renovation uh, was complete. And so I am very mindful of the fact that I am just a small piece of what the Lord uh, has done here. And you have loved my family very well since day one. Uh, Carol Wittenberg meeting us in the parking lot with quilts for my children uh, on our first day is symbolic of just how well we've been loved and how blessed we are to be part of such a great church. And the Lord has brought growth and brought a lot of new incredible families uh, over these past five years. And so we're excited about what the Lord is doing. I'm so grateful for an incredible staff uh, that we have here as a church who are gifted, who are talented, who love Jesus uh, most importantly. And so uh, I rejoice in being a partner with them. And uh, I have to say uh, that I'm thankful for Christy Ross. Um, Today, today, 
That's my wife, if you're new here, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, today's five years being here, but 15 years uh, since we started out, uh, when I started as a lead pastor, and for 15 years on Sunday mornings, um, she's been by herself, uh, getting our now six children uh, ready. Uh, anytime somebody's sick, she's the one that has to not be here or be doing something else to take care of them. Um, all along the time she's been in the background serving faithfully uh, wherever the Lord would have her. And I, practically speaking, could not uh, do the things that the Lord does through me uh, without just her uh, lack of drama. Uh, that's a big deal. And uh, her incredible faithful support. And so I'm so grateful uh, for her. I'm just grateful uh, to be a child of God, uh, most importantly, and I'm grateful to be able to proclaim uh, the word of God uh, every week, and so that's what I get to do this morning. So you can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 40, uh, as we continue in the gospel of Mark. Um, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through 20, which is in most English translations of the Bible, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. So this large section of scripture is actually one of the greatest points of tension regarding the reliability of Bible translation. There are some issues with Bible translation, even though, all things considered, the discrepancies account for less than half of a percent of the words of the Bible. But given the lack of evidence that verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16 were originally in Mark's Gospels, Mark's Gospel, sorry, we're going to look at the subjects contained there in the other Gospels. So we'll discuss the importance of them over the next three weeks. This may seem odd to you who are used to hearing Christmas sermons, but given the timing of our landing there, I think it is a unique opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that without the resurrection, the birth doesn't really matter. So that's next week and for the next few weeks. And in there is Christmas Eve, and I would encourage you uh, to grab an invite card. And I had one, but I don't know what I did with it. There it is. And invite uh, someone to join you for Christmas Eve uh, because uh, especially uh, that service is a time when people who normally do not go to church would be uh, very likely to come with you if you invited them. Uh, so that, again, we begin that next week. So then today officially concludes our time in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark with a few breaks for one year and eight months, 74 different sermons. And so for the past three weeks, we've reflected on the cross, what Christ suffered for us, why Christ suffered for us, and how we should live for him. I want to bring us back to the factual aspect that Jesus was killed on a tree on a hill outside of Jerusalem. There were those there who believed in Jesus and there were those there who walked away proud of what they helped facilitate in the crucifixion of Jesus. Missing from the scene were most of Jesus' disciples. Mark tells us, however, that there were some followers of Jesus who were nearby. Verse 40 of Mark chapter 15 says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome, or Salome, depending on how you pronounce that. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So here we have Mary Magdalene. She was named Mary, and she was from Magdala. I'm sure you appreciate that very great explanation there. Some have said that Mary was a prostitute. Uh, because Magdala is a region that is, is known for prostitution. Also, people have tried to connect the dots about Mary Magdalene. We know that Jesus healed her. We actually don't know a lot more about her. Present also is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. 
while Jesus had a brother named James and Joseph, it doesn't make sense that this would be Jesus's mother as Mark would have referred to her in such a way, Jesus's mother. These are very common names in this day. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told to be present by John. Salome or Salome is there as well. Matthew includes the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Joanna is mentioned by Luke. And it is clear that there are other women around. Mark tells us that they've been a part of the crowd of the disciples. I think most of us know that there were 12 disciples who followed Jesus pretty closely. But the Gospels tell us that there were actually 72 disciples who followed Jesus and that the crowd of those who were following Jesus ebbed and flowed. And what is only casually mentioned in the Gospels is the women who were disciples. The passive and active language used in our text this morning indicates that their following and ministering was ongoing throughout Jesus's life. They were heavily involved in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the church as it started. And here on this day of the crucifixion, they are nearby. James A. Brooks, a biblical commentator, says, women who are traditionally associated with weakness in this crisis were stronger than men. The same has often been true throughout Christian history. Today, there is a lot of debate on the roles that men and women play in the church. But let me be clear about something. There is no debate on equality or significance or value or the voice that women should have in the life of the local church. You see, what I have noticed is what typically is happening in the life of the local church for the kingdom of God is often because of what women are doing. We planted a church before this. We were there about 10 years. And in that 10 years, we saw the church grow from about seven to 300 people, moving out 25 to 50% every year because of the military. And so people would ask me, how did you, you know, how did the church grow? And I said, well, really two ways primarily. One was me just being out in the community, meeting people, inviting people, all those things. Number two is a woman would join our church and she would invite a whole lot of people. And that would happen over and over again. And I, I see that as how churches typically grow, is a woman who's gifted in evangelism and connecting with people who are bringing people into the church. You say, oh, can you tell me about men who that's happened through? Not really. I don't know very many of them. It's typically a woman. I would say historically in this church, a lot of the outreach that we have done uh, have, have been because of the effort, the vision, the passion of women. This church's desire to reach young people and connect young people into the life of the church, even when there was colored carpet that I'm glad we don't have anymore and buildings that didn't look quite as good as they do now. You hear names like Carol Wise, who's went to be with the Lord, and other women who took it upon themselves to make sure that that was happening. And so we see the church growing in this way. Now, these women are not the only ones who are present here. Verse 42 tells us, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea boldly asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Matthew tells us that Joseph is a rich man. Luke tells us that he is a member of the council, either the great Sanhedrin or a local council, probably the Sanhedrin, the way it is written. Luke tells us that he's a good and righteous man who did not consent to the decision to crucify Jesus or arrest Jesus. 
Luke tells us, and so does Mark, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. We learn that he becomes a disciple of Jesus. However, the verb used by Matthew to indicate that he's a disciple is that he became one later. So what he was doing here, he was really doing as a seeker and as one who was concerned with the law. You see, in Roman law, a crucifixion of a criminal was not the end of their humiliation. The humiliation followed the person in death. They were typically barred from honor and they were also barred from any kind of proper burial. And the release of a corpse for burial depended solely on the kindness or the generosity of the magistrate. So unless somebody went and asked, the chances were that the body would simply be left there to rot or to be devoured by predatory animals and birds. Joseph wants to give Jesus a proper burial and ask Pilate if he can do so. Mark tells us in verse 44 that Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. It usually took longer for people to die on the cross, but the Roman centurion does verify Jesus is dead. So these Romans had said he's dead. That's one of the evidences here of uh, the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot of historical uh, references there, and that's actually what we're gonna talk about next week as we move on. But some have said that Pilate said yes because he viewed Jesus as innocent, and perhaps that was a factor. But what was likely a factor was that Joseph was a man of influence and this was a political move by Pilate. Joseph was in a hurry to bury him as the Sabbath was going to begin in just a few hours and he wanted to comply with Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, where the law says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So since Jesus is Jewish and the Jewish law says we don't want to leave this guy hanging on the tree all night, we need to get him buried so that we do not bring defilement on our land. Uh, he asked to bury him quickly. And Pilate grants his request. And verse 46 says, Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and lamed, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the Mary, Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now again, this was not the custom. Family and friends would typically be the ones who requested the body. But first, we'll see that the Pharisees would have never let that happen. And second, we need to understand this is God's plan. Hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah said this, Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Hundreds of years before this, the word of God said Jesus will die with the wicked and will be with the rich man in his death. And here Joseph, this rich man, buries him in his tomb. Luke's gospel tells us that this tomb had never been used. In tombs like these, the body would be set down in a shelf carved along the wall, and after decomposition, which usually took about one to three years, their bones would be moved to a common pile or small burial box, and the tomb then could then be used by families over several generations. And then they would you know, roll a large stone in front of it. This kept things from outside and things from coming from, out, from the inside. Anyway, I don't know, I just felt like that. <laughs> My kids are probably embarrassed. One would assume that Joseph had servants who helped him 
get this done quickly. John tells us that one of those men were Nicodemus, another member of the council. Now, some have said they found the site where he was buried. But the truth is, we don't know exactly where Jesus was buried. People will charge you to come and see the place that he was buried if you go uh, to this region. But why don't we know exactly where Jesus was buried? Well, I'm gonna ruin the ending here. Because he isn't there. (laughs) He's not there. And rest assured that there is more going on here than some conspiracy by a rich man and a few of his friends. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that there was great concern over what might happen by the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, you need to notice, Matthew mentions all this is happening on the Sabbath. So the religious crowd has a lot of problems with the breaking of the law. In fact, that's one of their big issues with Jesus, that he doesn't follow all the law the way they see it. But it's okay to go about doing all this work when they wanted to get something done. Pilate responds to their accusation that something shady is going to happen by appropriately ordering his military to secure the tomb. You need to understand that Roman soldiers were highly trained, highly skilled, professional killers. And they knew what they were doing. And the penalty in their day for not doing their job of guarding something was replacing that thing. So if they were entrusted with something very valuable and they lost it, they had to pay a fine or, you know, basically pay a debt of slavery to uh, make up for what they lost. If they lost a person, whether that person was alive or dead, a body, it was their life that could be taken for losing that person. So there's a lot at stake here for the Roman soldiers and the Roman officials and the Jewish officials. Now, many today think that's it, that Jesus is buried there It is silly to think that Jesus didn't ever live. There's a lot of historical evidence, references, the obvious impact. He lived and he died. But the Bible teaches us, and I believe the evidence supports, that not only did he live and die, but then came the first day of the week. Mark chapter 16, verse one says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. They waited until the day after the Sabbath. Now, the Jews did not embalm and are still not supposed to embalm, but spices would be used to lessen the stench of the decomposing body. John tells us that Nicodemus had wrapped the body in about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes before burial. So so maybe they didn't know the extent of what had already been done or, you know, they were there. So maybe since there wasn't time and the rush of getting Jesus buried, uh, you know, they didn't properly prepare him for burial. And so they're trying to finish that. I conclude that either way, they wanted to show their devotion to Jesus. And verse two tells us, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now in their love and passion, they didn't think ahead about a very obvious issue. Rolling the stone away was quite the ordeal, and it was certainly not something that three women could do on their own, no offense. And the Roman guards probably weren't gonna help them because they didn't care. 
But to their shock, their concern was irrelevant. Verse four says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Thanks for that detail, Mark. Matthew tells us a little more about what they walked upon. Matthew chapter 28, verse two says, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So they would have come upon this scene with these guards in fear for what's going on. And Mark tells us, Mark chapter 16, verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The tomb's actually quite big, so there's enough to, room to kind of walk in and move around in. And sitting on the right side was an angel of the Lord. Luke says that there were two men, but apparently only one does the talking, so clearly it wasn't two men with the personalities of me and Pastor Justin, because we'd be talking over each other. And verse six says, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. That phrasing means do not be overwhelmed at amazement of what is taking place. It's, it's connected to fear. The, the Greek word there is ekthambeo, from the Greek word emphabos, which is where we get the word fear. And this is what they felt. Luke says in Luke chapter 24, verse five, and as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then he says some of the greatest words in the history of the world. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. He told you this was going to happen. And they remembered that he had said this would happen. You see, something amazing about all of this is not just that 400 years or 500 years before this that it was predicted, but that Jesus himself predicted his own death and resurrection. And so here indeed is the reality that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And so the angel then gives them some instructions. Verse seven, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They did not tell anyone on the way. But Luke records that they do tell the 11 when they get to the 11. But the 11 are not uh, believing them. And we'll look to the other gospels over the next few weeks to talk more about what happened after the resurrection. But I believe there are two things here that stand out to me from what we read in our text this morning. The first is this. God's use of these women in proclaiming the resurrection. It does not make sense that the disciples in the early church would invent a story about women being witnesses to the resurrection. Philo, who was a Greek writer in that day, said women are irrational and should not be trusted. Now, I'm not gonna touch that. 
But the point here is that that is how women were viewed in their society. You would never say, hey, I'm innocent. Trust me, these women can verify it. You just would not do that. You would never say that. Because in their day, women were not credible. They were not credible witnesses. They were viewed as lesser than in society. And what happens here? Do not underestimate the significance of what is happening here. Jesus demonstrates that it does not matter what society thinks about someone. It matters what God thinks about someone. And God wanted to use women to proclaim that Jesus was not there. He has risen and he did it. That's what he did. Again, this does not mean that all of us will have the same assignments in this world, but it means that we all have great value in the kingdom of God. The gospel would go forth to the Gentiles, welcoming them into the kingdom of God, just as sons of Abraham were welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus would demonstrate that while society may look down upon the poor and the oppressed, God sees them as those who have great value. The gospel message, the life of Jesus, the writing of Paul, the life of the early church says that sinners who are cast out and labeled as hopeless causes by their society are the people who will be great in the kingdom of God because they have experienced his grace and so forth. Your value is not determined by what your community, your family, even your church family says about you. Your value is declared that Jesus Christ came into this world, died on the cross, and rose again so that you could be with him for all of eternity and that that is what matters more than anything else. Know that today and yield to him as Lord. Submit to him and carry out the roles that he calls you to with great authority by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we know that, fear will creep in. Anxiety will creep in. Worry will creep in. And the second thing that stands out to me from this text is this. The stone was not rolled back so that Jesus could come out. It was rolled back so that others could go in and see that he has risen. We see Jesus passing through walls as a resurrected Jesus. Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away. It's not like he would be trapped in there. But the stone was rolled away so that we could go in and we could see that he had indeed risen from the grave. And the biggest focus in the language here in this text is fear. In fact, if you back up in the Gospel of Mark, you see that a big focus is the disciples' fear at the arrest of Jesus and the crucifixion, and including Peter. And then you see the women who have this fear as they see the stone rolled away. And then you have these women who have this fear as they're leaving <laughs> the site of the resurrection. And, and today, I, I realize that what often hinders us from living the life that God has called us to live is fear. And we might label it in different ways, but it's fear. And, and we have all kinds of different fears. And I, I realize that today, you know, in a room this size and those who are watching online, there, there are all kinds of different fears. But I, I did a little bit of research on fear and I looked at several different surveys and several different articles that talk about what are the greatest fears in our society. And, and I was able to deduce that there were about eight fears that were in about 90% of all these things. And so here, here are those eight fears. 
death, illness, a corrupt government, evil acts or evil people committing those acts, financial security, going to the dentist. Uh, it's in all of them just about, sorry. The environment, whether that's global warming or natural disasters, rejection and loneliness. Now, there are a lot of helpful solutions to fear. Friendships, having people you can talk with, having people who support you, having a hobby, something that just, you can focus just on that and not think about the things that are going on around you. Therapy or counseling, maybe being active against the thing that you're concerned with or problem that you see. These things are helpful. But if we're not careful, if we don't get to the root of the issue, these things can just be distractions. And I would suggest to you that religion can just be a distraction. It can just be something that causes us to be distracted from what is really filling us with fear, what is really consuming us. And if we do not get to the issue, then all of these things don't really help us. But I wanna be very clear about something. There are a lot of religious beliefs out there. There are a lot of religions out there. The founders of all of these religions are buried in their tomb. And Jesus is alive. And that makes all the difference in the world. And it may be overtly simple, but it is essentially a value that we understand the implications on our life that Jesus is alive. I just wanna read these scriptures over you as I think about those fears that we commonly face. Going to the dentist, you're gonna need your help. You're gonna need to figure out your help for yourself. That's a therapist, not me. But let's talk about the environment. People are afraid of what's going on in our world. I know this is a red region, so not very many of you are really concerned with global warming, but there are a lot of people who are. And we are, we live in a hurricane you know, prone area. People are afraid of natural disasters. Matthew chapter eight, verse 27 says this. What kind of a man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Look, prepare, make wise choices, but understand that ultimately, God has authority over the wind and the waves. Evil acts, evil people. This is one of the greatest objections to believing in God. How can these evil things happen? How can evil people exist? And they do, and they cause great harm. Remember the words of Romans 8.35, which says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Paul says to those who are about to experience great persecution, who are about to be slaughtered for their faith in a time, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Financial security. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? I have the greatest treasure in heaven. Corrupt government. We'll hear this passage a lot over the next few weeks. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I know that we've lived in an unprecedented time of freedom and prosperity in this nation, but that has not been the historical case for most people who have walked the face of this earth. And we must understand that what God is doing is building a kingdom where there is complete peace, where he is ruling and reigning and where everyone is welcome. Rejection and loneliness. Jesus says in John 14, verse one through three, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will never be alone. The king who has risen is with you and is preparing a place for you for all of eternity. Illness, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul acknowledges our bodies are failing but it will not worth be comparing to the, reveal, the, the glory that will be revealed to us in heaven. And some of us are afraid of death. But even death, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 and 55 says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It is unbelievably simple, but essentially valuable to understand that because Jesus is alive, there is nothing we truly have to be afraid of. And when we realize that in this world we will have trouble, but to be encouraged because he has overcome the world. It should fuel a confidence and a security that is nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and is risen in victory with him. And even in death, and I see it at funerals, there is a difference for the believer because we understand we have victory, not because of something we have done or deserve, but because of what he has done and who he is. And so this morning, if fear is overtaking you, if you're struggling, I want you to look to the person of Christ. Let's pray together, and I wanna pray over you now. Lord, I know that this morning that there are those who, they're worried they're afraid. 
Maybe for the first time in their life, they're uncertain about how they're gonna pay all their bills, whether or not their plans are actually gonna happen. There are those in this room who, they're struggling with their health. Things are changing for them. There are those in this room who, maybe because of things they've done or maybe because of things that they've experienced, they just, they can't seem to believe Lord, I know that there are those in here who are grieving because they miss someone. Lord, I do not know the answers to all of the issues and problems in this room, but here's what I know. The answer starts with you and it ends with you. And so, Lord, we should look to you. We should look to you through every step of the process. And God, even if we lose, or it seems like we lose, we know that you are alive, that you are sitting on the throne of a kingdom that will never end. And so God, because of that, we can take one step forward, trusting in you, that you will help us. God, you have the love demonstrated on the cross and the authority demonstrated in the empty tomb to be everything we need. May we depend on you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.